Well, good morning again, everyone. My thanks to Zach and our team for leading us in such powerful worship and song. And now let's worship in the Word, shall we? King David, at the season of his life that I'm going to speak of in a moment, he, he was at a pinnacle time in his life. As a king, the Lord had given him victory over all of his enemies. He would expanded the borders of the nation of Israel to, to new vistas, new horizons. He had shown great compassion to the enemy of his soul, Saul, to his household. On a spiritual level, he was, he had danced with wild abandonment as the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Zion. He administered justice and equity to all of his people, the scripture teaches. He arguably was at the pinnacle moment of his life as a king. He'd been anointed, as many of you remember, as 16, but he hadn't begun to serve until he was 30. He was on top of the world. I want to ask you this morning, have you guys ever had a time in your life where things were really going well, the blessings seemed to flow, your spiritual life was in tune with God, you felt on top of the world? Can I see your hands? Some of us have had those times. He was at that time where he had a request, and this is Michael Hall commentary, but I believe that he was a little bit full of himself, and he had an idea. He said, hey, I'm, I'm going to build a house for the Lord. And I, he talked to his trusted advisor and prophet Nathan and said, hey, I think I need to build a house for the Lord. After all, David had just finished his house. It's a beautiful palace. And Nathan said, I think that's a pretty good idea until the Lord appeared to him that night. And in what could be considered a rebuke, Nathan says to him, excuse me, the Lord says to Nathan, would you build a house for me? No, I'm going to build a house for you. So the Lord told him no. But in that conversation that the Lord had with Nathan, he promised David that someone would sit on his throne forever. And that someone is the one we just sing about that get, gets the last word. It was Jesus. So I want you to watch this. David is at the pinnacle of his time as a king. He's in his palace. Things are right in the world. It's springtime. He's sending his out his armies to battle to keep things where they should be. But he decides to stay in Jerusalem. Instead of being at his rightful place, at the head of his armies. And one day he looks out upon from his palace. He looks down and he sees a woman bathing. And you know the rest of the story. And this sin marks his life from that moment forward. It disqualified him to build the temple. It also the sword never left his house. And there's a word of caution here that may be for you and me today. And Peter says it like this. 
He says, stay diligent. Be aware of the enemy's schemes. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Well, David repents. One reason I believe that God calls him a man after his own heart was his brokenness after his sin was discovered. And so he was unable to build the temple, but the Lord tells him, you're going to have a son. And that son's going to build the temple. He's going to build a house for my name. So David, knowing that he couldn't participate in the building process, he helps his son the way a good father would. He begins to accumulate all the materials necessary to build this magnificent temple. And that's where we pick up the story today. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 11. It says, Now the word of the Lord, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, if you notice, the word Lord is all in caps. It's the tetragrammaton. It's the most holy of the names of God. It's His most personal as well. So the Lord, the holy God, is speaking directly to Solomon. And He's saying, Concerning this house that you are building, notice he doesn't say concerning my house that you're building. Concerning this house you're building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people, Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. This is the word of the Lord. Various theories have been proposed concerning the value of this temple. When you look at the quantities of gold and silver that are mentioned in the, in the Old Testament, just the gold and silver alone would be valued in today's dollars at $500 billion. Many scholars place the total value of this building, when you include all the other materials and the labor, at $1 trillion. When you compare that to current structures in our day, the most expensive building that I could find that currently exists is, is under con construction. It's the International Thermonuclear Reactor in France. It's, it's scheduled to be finished in 2025 at a cost of $25 billion. When I think about our modern day temples where we worship every Saturday and Sunday, I didn't get a laugh here. See, I need to insert like laugh right here. That's, <laughs> do we not worship Saturday and Sunday at these temples, right? The house that Jerry Jones built that houses the Dallas Cowboys cost him a little over a billion dollars. So Solomon's temple was a thousand times more expensive than Jerry's world. So Solomon completes the temple. He brings the Ark of the Covenant from the tabernacle into the Holy of Holies. He dedicates it with prayer. And something extraordinary happens in Jerusalem in that place. It says that the, a cloud of, filled the house of the Lord and the glory of God fell. The Shekinah glory of God fell. The priest couldn't even minister because of this cloud. The glory of the Lord filled the house. But as the days rolled by, the years rolled by, Solomon forgot what the Lord had told him. 
He didn't keep his statutes. He didn't walk in his ways. He married other women from foreign countries and began to incorporate their gods and their idols into the corporate worship for Israel. His life becomes one of vanity. In fact, he writes at the end of his life, arguably the richest man in the history of mankind. And he writes at the end of his life that all is vanity. After his death, there were unfaithful kings. The kingdom became divided. And ultimately, 400 years after this temple was built, it was destroyed. Because you see, as our pastor taught us a few weeks ago, this temple, it's not this. That wasn't God's plan. His plan wasn't that mankind would worship in places built with precious metals and wood and stone. His perfect plan was to dwell in our bodies, our lives. Solomon understood this when he said during his prayer of dedication, you'll see it on the screen, he said, but will God indeed dwell on this earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. That temple wasn't the plan. The plan was for our bodies to become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus introduces this revolutionary concept when he speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well. Maybe you remember that story. It's an extraordinary story. Jesus' purpose is to go through Samaria to a place where there was enmity, there was hatred between Jews and Samaritans. Jesus' purpose to go there. He meets this woman at the well. He tells her a little bit about her life. She marvels. And she says these words. She said, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet because he had told her about her husbands and her life. <laughs> she says, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You see, the Samaritans had their own temple. They had a temple on Mount Gerizim where, where he was, that that's where they worshiped. He says, She said, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, where the next temple was, the second temple, which was Herod's temple. You say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. But look at what Jesus said to her. He said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here. Because Jesus was there. He's bringing in this new kingdom concept that we'll no longer worship in buildings. He says, what true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter speak into this conversation as well. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and he says to them, Or do you not know that your body 
is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Beloved, don't miss this next, these next verse. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Peter speaks to this and he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things. Not with the things that Solomon used to build that temple. Not with gold, not with silver, notwithstanding the value of that. No, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we've been bought with a price. Where do you find your value today? Where do you find your worth? Is it viewed from the lens of the price that Jesus paid? Psychology Today, or PositivePsychology.com, suggests that there are five factors that people commonly use to measure their self-worth. The first is appearance. Can I just give you a little secret? That fades over time. <laughs> I'm sure that's not a newsflash to many of you. Appearance. The second is net worth. That can fade as well. The third is who you know, your social circle. The fourth is your career. The fifth is what you achieve. By in and of themselves, these are not harmful things. They're not inherently wrong. But if you place your value, if you believe that's what you're worth, You're mistaken. You see, and can you guys just look at me for just a second? I don't know what you came in here this morning. I don't know how you are determining your value. I don't know what factors are in your life. Maybe you come in here and you're on top of the world like David was a moment ago I was speaking. Or maybe you feel like you're not worth very much. But the truth is, no matter what you came in here today with your view of your worth, you are precious to God. You've been bought with a price. The blood of the sinless man of God who willingly gave his life as a ransom. You're more valuable than we could even calculate Jesus told his disciples when he was sending them out, he said, not a sparrow falls to the ground that my father doesn't know. Do you not think you're worth more than that? Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like the lilies of the field, but yet you worry about what you eat or drink or wear. No, he knows those things about us. The psalmist David said that before our days were he knew them. He knew the number of those days. He knows the numbers of the hairs on our head. He is with us always. We're his friend. The writer of Hebrews says that there was a joy set before Christ. 
And because of that joy, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. And beloved, can I just share with you this morning that you're part of that joy? That's what you're worth. You've been redeemed. If you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, you are redeemed. You're worth more to God than you could ever imagine. And because you were bought with this great price, this incalculable value, you should develop an awareness of the glorious reality that the truth is your body is the very temple of the Holy Spirit. And for most of us, to walk in this truth, change is needed. And there are some changes we should expect as we walk in this reality, as we recognize that our bodies are literally the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's three principles at work here. They're catalysts that it, it's, it demonstrates how God is at work in us to bring about the change. The first one, if you're a note taker, it's on page one, is the first one is that God is able to bring about change in our life. He's able. Aren't we glad? Are there things that need to change in your life this morning? <laughs> Can I see your hands? Right? I mean, we need some change. I need change. You do too. Look at what Paul says. Watch this in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Do you need power at work in your life today? According to the power that at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God is able to change us. Second principle that's at work is God changes my life as I abide in his word. When Jesus prayed for us in John 17, I love that chapter. He says, sanctify them. He's talking about us. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And the third principle is that God changes my life through the power of his spirit. Paul continues to write in Ephesians. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, and don't miss this, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Can I just say it's awfully hard sometimes for churches to get the balance of these principles right, just right. One of the ways God changes us is the Word. There are lots of churches that give real emphasis to the teaching of the Word, to the study of the Word, to the memorization of the Word, to the application of the Word. We're one of those. Praise God for that. That's consistent with Scripture. And I'm not saying this is us, but sometimes that teaching, sometimes we neglect the teaching about the Holy Spirit. And His power is neglected. And then there's other denominational streams in churches that emphasize the immediacy of God's power through the Spirit. But oftentimes in those streams, 
There's not biblical depth. There's not doctrinal fidelity. There's no deep understanding. So I want you to watch this. It's like two wings on a plane. Both are needed for us to fly and soar spiritually as God intends. And for real change, for lasting change, change from the inside out to occur, it involves both the Word through which God forms us and reforms us, shapes us and reshapes us, and the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. It takes both. And when our understanding of the Word and our experience with the power of the Holy Spirit are put together in biblical proportion, wow, change will happen. And it will happen beautifully. I'd like you to look at the diagram on the bottom of page one of your notes. When we first hear the Gospel, when we repent and believe, we call that conversion or being born again. And I've given you some scriptures there in that diagram. We're sealed with the Spirit. Our spirits are sealed with the Spirit to the day of redemption. We're baptized in the Holy Spirit once. And that's a sovereign, providential act of God by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. But then the Bible also teaches, and this is the other side of the diagram, and I want you to watch this, that being filled with the Spirit occurs over and over and over again in a believer's life. As we mature as believers, God intends for us daily to be filled with the Spirit. It's an act of our human responsibility, and we're to be empowered by His Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. Dr. Bill Bright, many years ago, illustrated well the fact that sometimes believers live their lives for Christ, not tapped into the fullness of the Spirit's power. There was a man, he, he tells the story, Dr. Bright told the story about a man named Ira Yates. His wife, wife's name was Ann. They lived in West Texas during the Great Depression. And they had bought this plot of land and were attempting to build a sheep ranch. But it wasn't going so well. In fact, his ranching operation was not profitable enough for him to pay his mortgage and his principal and interest on his mortgage. And they were in danger of foreclosure. They had little money for clothes, for food, for the other basics of life. In fact, their family, like a lot of other families during the Great Depression, was living on government subsidy. And day after day, as he grazed his sheep on those rolling hills of West Texas, he was troubled, wondering how they would get by. Then one day, on a hunch, he invited the Transcontinental Oil Company to see maybe if they could find anything on his land. He signed a lease for them to drill a wildcat well, and at 1,115 feet, they struck oil. 
The first well came in at 80,000 barrels a day. More wells were drilled, some larger than the first. And to this day, well over 1 billion barrels of oil have been produced from Ira and Ann Yates' farm. And guess what? Ira and Ann owned it all. They owned all the minerals. When they bought the plot of land, the minerals came with it. And yet he had been living on government subsidy because he didn't know the resource that was his. Now look right up here if you would for just a moment. I don't know how it is in your walk with the Lord this morning, but here's the intent of this section of teaching. It's to say that God has made available to us resources that we can't even imagine. He's made available to us the power of the Holy Spirit to transform and change our lives. The power and the resources available to us just like the barrels of oil that were underneath Ira Yates' farm. And if we tap into that by faith, His power will change our lives. So, what does this daily filling of the Spirit look like? Maybe this is a new concept to you. It certainly was to me. I was raised in a Southern Baptist environment. We, we never talked about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> So what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Well, I've given you some things to, to look at on page two of your notes. And Scripture teaches a lot about the Holy Spirit. But the command I want to focus on primarily today is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And Paul says this. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Listen. Beloved, this is in the present tense imperative. What that means is this. It's currently, it's day-to-day, it's continuous action, and it's a command. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. Be filled with the Spirit. And here's the steps that are typically involved. They're in your notes. Step one, desire to be filled with the Spirit. Just say, Lord, I recognize today that my very body is the temple of your Holy Spirit. Come and fill me. Number two is confess and repent of all known sins. As God begins to fill us, He leads us to confession. He leads us to repentance. And you see, the goal here is not to come before the Lord and say that you've got it all together but to come before Him with an open heart, saying, I'm willing for you to use my life as a vessel to change me. The third step is to yield complete control of my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. When I was preparing this sermon and got to this point, I laughed to myself. I don't know if any of you are like me, but I've applied for the manager of the universe job numerous times. I used to think I'd get at least a call back, but it never happened. You see, what the Lord is saying to us this morning, beloved, is that, first of all, whether we believe it or not, it's true. He is in control. 
He is sovereignly, providentially controlling everything that's happening in this universe right now. Jesus is upholding this universe by the word of his power. Do I not think that he's in control of my life? Can we yield control of our lives to him and say, you are Lord, there is none other. Take control, Jesus. And the last step is by faith. Ask God and expect God to fill me with his spirit for my good and his glory. I'd like to make a request of you this week. If this is a new concept to you, maybe this is not. Maybe this is old hat to you. But would you take some time with your Bible to be alone, to be away from the distractions and the Holy Spirit? By the way, that's all you need. And walk through these four steps. Would you ask Him to fill you with His Spirit? Will you, will you explore that? Would you please do that? Will you recognize the price that's been paid for you? Will you acknowledge how precious you are to Him that the glorious Son of God would shed His blood? So what kind of changes should we expect as we're filled with the Spirit? What, what, what does that look like? Well, I've given you seven things and they're in your notes. The first thing is that there should be a change in our worship experience. And this change is primarily, principally expressed through song. If you'll notice this verse 19, I want you to watch this. This verse happens immediately after Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. And here's what he says. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Paul's saying, you're going to address one another in song. That's the horizontal component. Your singing should be an encouragement to those around you. Doesn't matter how talented you are. Let me ask you this. How many of you would say that you're not a good singer? Join me. Right? There's no qualifications here. We don't have to sing like Riley and Elena and Zach and Ron. I mean, that's not what's, what's going on here. No, we're to, as we're filled with the Spirit, there should be a natural outflow and expression in song as we minister with each other. It doesn't matter what the style doesn't matter whether it's hymns, doesn't matter whether it's contemporary, blended, liturgical. What matters is the condition of your soul. Are you filled with the Spirit? Are you singing and expressing that to Him and encouraging one another? Now, there's a vertical component to this as well, and you see it right there in the Scripture. That vertical component is that we make melody to the Lord with our heart. I don't know about you guys, but I've sure experienced that here in the last few months. I praise God for our team. 
But there have been moments, too, that I've experienced that kind of worship not in this setting. Maybe you have as well. The next change we should see is a change in our attitude. Do you see that in verse 20? Paul says, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the ways you can recognize whether you're filled with the Spirit is do you have an attitude of gratitude pulsing through your veins? The third change is change in my relationships. Verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That submission is a posture of humility. Immediately after Paul writes this verse, the next few verses are speaking about relationships, relationships between husbands and wives, relationships between parents and children. So this passage is teaching us not only do we worship in song, but we worship in our relationships. That to be filled with the Spirit will be about relationship. One fellow said it this way, being filled with the Spirit is not about how loud you shout or how high you jump, but it's about how faithfully you walk when your feet hit the ground. The fourth thing is less and less works of the flesh in my life. Oh, beloved, listen. As you're filled with the Spirit day by day, you're going to be compelled to put to death the deeds of the flesh. You will be compelled to not make peace, but to declare war on your sin. And you will see victory in those sin issues that have beset you as the Lord's Spirit fills you with His power. And the fifth is more and more fruit of the Spirit. Do you desire more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more gentleness, more meekness, more self-control? As you're filled with God's Spirit, the change that will occur in you is you will begin to experience that fruit. The sixth is in the sixth change is empowerment to use my gifts to serve others in the body of Christ in a variety of activities all for the common good there will be a growing desire to use your gifts for the benefit of the church i as i was preparing this i have a sense that there are those in our church that there's a prompting happening in your life right now from the Holy Spirit. And that prompting is that use your gift. You see, Paul really clear, clearly identifies this in the 12th chapter of the, of the first Corinthian letter. It's we need each other. I love our pastor. He's a wonderful teacher. I have my assignment. Zach team has assignment, but so do you. And by the way, the scripture teaches clearly that even those things we believe are insignificant in the body of Christ, guess what? They're irreplaceable. 
So I think there's a prompting happening in some of, of you in our church that to use your gift, to follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit for the benefit of the church. I'm reminded of the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. How many, have any of you ever been to Israel? Can I see your hands? So I've had the privilege of being there as well. And, and the, the Sea of Galilee is in the north. It's beautiful. It's fed by the river Jordan that begins in Mount Hermon and it flows down. And it's beautiful for situation. The Golan is in the north. It's just beautiful. It's just a beautiful setting. I, some of the most amazing sunrises I've ever experienced have been there. Teeming with fish. Wonderful place. has an inlet and it has an outlet. The Jordan River flows out south down to the Dead Sea. But the Dead Sea has no outlet. In fact, if you're in the Dead Sea very long, you won't be there. You're going to want to get out. And I want you to watch this. It's the same thing in our spiritual lives. Whenever God's Spirit flows through you and me, then it flows out in meaningful service to others. It produces spiritual vitality. It produces spiritual life. It produces spiritual satisfaction. But when we ask God to fill us and that filling has no outlet, there's no way for that to be expressed in meaningful service. Death comes. We shrivel up spiritually and we die like the Dead Sea. We have an opportunity before us today, specifically, to use our gifts to serve others in the body of Christ. There's a great need with our ministry partners right now in India, our church planners that we support. Tom Alberts wrote this amazing email about those, those needs. And so we have an opportunity to give to these beloved brothers and sisters. Uh, is Tom in here at this service? Or is Tom, Tom's in the back? Jonathan's here as well. They'll collect those offerings. Uh, it's just a way for us to have an outlet. The last way, sorry, the Holy Spirit can change us is a boldness to speak the Word of God as a witness for Christ. Most often through the narratives, when Luke's writing about what's happening with the men and women as the Holy Spirit comes upon them in the New Testament church, it's not necessarily talking about the gifts. And I'm not diminishing the power of the gifts of the Spirit at all. They're real. They exist today. I'm a continuist. We're not going to put the Holy Spirit in a box. I don't care what theologians write. He's wild and unfettered. He will do exactly what he wants to do when he wants to do it. But beloved, here's what thing. What we see mostly, most often associated with the filling of the Spirit is a boldness to be a witness for Christ. It's a boldness to be a witness for Christ. I think about Peter. All of us remember that sermon on the day of Pentecost. That amazing sermon where the church was born. But many of us may forget that just a few days earlier, 
He was going back to his old way of life. He didn't think God could ever use him. But Jesus told him, you go to Jerusalem, you wait, something's coming. Maybe something's coming for you too. Because as you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you will have power to be a witness for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's a prayer that is on the screen. It's a simple prayer. I'm going to pray it for us as I close. And I would ask you, uh, if you want to pray it out loud, you're welcome to join me in prayer. If you want to pray it silently. But I'm going to pray this prayer with the intent and purpose of asking the Lord to fulfill this in your lives today. Let us pray. Father, I hunger and thirst for more of you, your presence and your power in my life. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to pay the penalty for all my sins on the cross and for raising him to life. I confess and turn from every sin you show me. I yield complete control of my life to the Lord Jesus. By faith, I ask you now to fill me with the Holy Spirit and empower me to walk in obedience by the Spirit. As evidence of my faith, I thank you now for filling me with your Spirit and trust you to lead me by your Spirit today. I pray in the name and authority of Jesus. Amen.